0: Thank you all for being here tonight. I apologize that we're not able to meet last week. We had originally thought we could uh, gun it back here from North Carolina, uh, but realized that since we weren't gonna get out of the worship service we were in until 1230, um, that the idea that we would get packed and back here and eat a meal and be here in time for the service and class was... uh, as the old Anglicans used to say, a fond thing, so. uh, Some of us got back at 6, some of us got back at 7, so. Depends on who was driving, yes. Uh, But also, just in case you were wondering, do not come next Wednesday, because we will not be here. I mean, if you wanna come, that's great, But uh, you won't be able to get in. (laughs) Uh, Because since it is the day before Thanksgiving, we will be off, but we'll pick up the Wednesday after that. So uh, this week we have a piece of music that uh, I don't think anyone is going to get. So we'll see what happens with that. Guesses on who was singing? Uh, no, that's always a good guess. So that was King's College, Cambridge, and they were singing Psalm 131. And one of the things that uh, struck me about this psalm is that it relates a lot to some of the things that we'll be talking about in the chapter tonight, but... The particular translation they're singing is one of the little known treasures of Anglicanism. So this is one of those things that is a little helpful tidbit that you might want to check out. The Psalms in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the old Book of Common Prayer, the 1928 Book of Common Prayer is the unadulterated one. The version of the Psalms that they use there That translation is by an English clergyman named Miles Coverdale who was one of the English reformers uh, back around the time of Queen Elizabeth. And it is, in my mind, a remarkably fresh translation. If you're used to reading the Psalms, it can be a great exercise to go back and read the Coverdale translation, Um, not coincidentally. It was also C.S. Lewis's favorite translation of the Psalms. So um, I would commend that to you. But the words that they were singing, which might have been a little hard to make out, are as follows, Lord, I am not high-minded. I have no proud looks. I do not exercise myself in great matters which are too high for me but I refrain my soul and keep it low like a child that is weaned from his mother. Yea, my soul is even as a weaned child. And it's this idea of leaning on the Lord and not being all puffed up about how great you are. So we'll see how that plays out in tonight's chapter. So let's say our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself so a word of welcome to anyone who is new whether in person or Uh, and podcast land. We're delighted to have you. Uh, If you are new, there are three approaches to this class. You can be on the beach, which means you do virtually nothing. Um, You may occasionally show up. If that's all you want to do, that is great. Uh, Or you can snorkel. You can go deep on the parts that you like and ignore the rest. Or you can scuba dive and follow all of the things uh, from every class and every link and every article. That brings me to the email list. If you are not on the email list and you uh, would like to be, please Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, USA, and you will find me on the website and just ask me to add you to the list. If you think you were on the list and all of a sudden you're not getting class emails anymore, please let me know. Sometimes that might mean that it's going to your spam folder. Sometimes it might mean that something weird has happened in our system at the church. Uh, But I want you to be able to get that because those resources are really helpful. So a couple of things about why this book is so important. Uh, Part of the reason that it is such a work of genius is it is working on three levels simultaneously. And the first level is that it is a great capstone work that brings together all of the Chronicles of Narnia and ties them up with a bow. It is also a profound reflection on the fall of man, the sin of Eden in Genesis 3, uh, and that goes on to explore the means of grace and the glory of heaven. And it is also a very remarkable parable about following Jesus. It's really applicable right now in our culture because of its emphasis on the importance of truth and word. So that's part of the reason we're spending all this time with it. And just a reminder that part of the reason that Lewis wrote this book and wrote many of his works of fiction was that he understood that people were deaf to logical argument and most people's eyes glazed over when you talked about theology. But if you could give them a good story that was beautiful, that people would engage and that as a result of that, you could bring truth to them, Um, through a format that they were not expecting and so that is what he is up to here so um, for the past couple of weeks we've been watching this story develop we saw the ape uh, in charge of everything who has set himself up as uh, the mouthpiece of this fake aslan Um, the ape has declared that he is a man no one can call him an ape without being uh, put in jail or penalized in some way. It is quite obvious that he is an ape, but he is insisting that he's a man and you have to treat him as one. And then we had in chapter 4, Tyrion, the true king of Narnia, tied up prisoner and being ministered to in this beautiful and loving way by all of the creatures of Narnia. And Tyrion crying out, feeling sort of crazy and thinking if anyone hears me, they'll think I'm crazy, but crying out to Aslan, 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 please come help me. Not for me, but please come and save Narnia. And probably a part of him is thinking, I'm just yelling into the air and making a fool of myself, but there was that kernel of faith in him that said this is important. And so he has this vision where he enters into this other world and he sees before him the children that he soon recognizes were the kings and queens of Narnia, exactly the help he wants and he's ready to give his speech about why they need to come help him and he finds he's absolutely mute and then the vision fades away and he is left tied to the tree alone and cold and wet in the middle of the forest and absolutely forlorn and without hope. But the next thing that happens is that help comes. Uh, Very soon after this, the youngest boy and girl uh, that were in that dream vision show up right in front of him. And he probably does have a few moments where he thinks, why couldn't you have sent some of the bigger ones instead of the littlest ones? Uh, But they introduce themselves to Tyrion. He recognizes their names as some of the great, heroes out of Narnian history. They free him, they go to this guard tower and put on armor and disguises. And then that brings us to chapter six, which we're going to begin to explore tonight. And what happens in chapter six is that Tyrion has been testing Eustace and Jill and their skill level and different things, uh, archery and sword fighting, and he is very, very surprised to find that they are actually quite accomplished. And he is impressed with that, but he also realizes that they're still children and that because they're going to have a long day in front of them, that they really need to get a good night's sleep. So he very intentionally wears them out so that they will sleep soundly through the night. So the next morning they wake early And they agree that the very first thing that they must do is to go back into great danger and rescue Jewel the Unicorn. Jewel the Unicorn is the closest friend and ally of King Tyrion. And there are a whole bunch of other things they could have decided to do, but because of their loyalty and commitment um, to one another, they go to rescue the Unicorn. Then the other thing that is interesting is that as they make their way through the woods trying to avoid being detected, Tyrion decides to make Jill, this young girl, the pathfinder who blazes the trail, who's responsible for making sure that they're not discovered, and so they reach Stable Hill and begin to execute Tyrion's plan. And Tyrion has thought through all the different aspects of this plan and he succeeds brilliantly and they're able to rescue Jewel. But then there is this moment of panic because Jill is gone. And they think that she's been captured by the Calormenes. But what has happened is that Jill shortly after that reappears and while they were rescuing Jewel the unicorn, she had gone into the stable itself to try to see if she could find this fake Aslan, which was a very brave, perhaps foolhardy and perhaps disobedient thing to do, but very brave nonetheless. And she goes in and she finds Puzzle the donkey in this lion skin. And Puzzle is not a very happy donkey because the ape is not taking very good care of him. And so he is delighted to be, as it were, sprung from the stable and is happy to go along. So, Jill comes up to Tyrion leading Puzzle the donkey, and Tyrion's immediate reaction, because he knows how Puzzle has been used to mislead and enslave all of these Narnians, Tyrion's first reaction is, stand clear so that I may chop off his head. And Jill, once again, with great courage, Uh, says, no, 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 you must not do that. He was manipulated by this ape. It's really not his fault. So we're going to explore some of that. So some themes that we're going to look at tonight. The first one is taking care of those who are in your charge. The second thing is honestly assessing the gifts of those who are in your fellowship and why that's important making a priority of aiding your friends, letting gifts and skills rather than stereotypes dictate roles and the quest, planning wisely allowing for both success and failure, standing up for truth and laughter and good news make the soul glad. So we'll see if we get through all that. Um, So taking care of those in your charge And I want to just say, this is something that in our culture today is not obvious at all. Um, I was just talking with some folks earlier today about this phenomenon that's going on really across the world, particularly with 20 and 30-year-olds, saying they don't want to have children because it's too much trouble. Uh, I heard an interview and the guy said, I can't be king of my world anymore if I have children because they scream and you have to change their diaper, and you have to pay money to take them to the doctor. Who wants to do that? The only person I want to take care of is me. And that is something that is an increasing phenomenon in our culture. So Lewis is going right in the face of that here. So here's the passage. About four hours later, Tyrion flung himself into one of the bunks to snatch a little sleep. The two children were already snoring. He had made them go to bed before he did because they would have to be up most of the night. And he knew at their age, they couldn't do without sleep. Also, he had tired them out. And then he tells them, if we are challenged, then do you two hold your peace and I will do my best to talk like a cursed, cruel, proud Lord of Kellerman. If I draw my sword, then thou, Eustace, must do likewise and let Jill leap behind us and stand with an arrow on the string. But if I cry home, then fly for the tower, both of you, and let none try to fight on, not even one stroke, after I've given the retreat. Such false valor has spoiled many notable plans in the wars. And now, friends, in the name of Aslan, let us go forward." And what you see all through that is how Tyrion is thinking about these children. He's thinking about their needs, He's thinking about protecting them, trying to set them up for success, and part of his plan involves taking care of those who are in his charge. So some scripture that relates to this, therefore, as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then from Romans, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. And then from Psalm 82, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And jumping back up to that Romans verse, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. If there was ever a culture that had as its top goal to please ourselves, that would be the culture that we live in right now. And if we were, as Christians, to do what we are enjoined to do in this Colossians verse, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, put on, proactively put on, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There's a deep truth there. So. Then, honestly assessing the gifts of those in your fellowship. Now, one of the things, and I could go on and on about this, and I won't, but just a little bit. Uh, Part of our problem in the church today is that we have an impoverished understanding of what the word fellowship means. We think that fellowship means coming up here and eating fried chicken together. And I love fried chicken as much as the next guy. I'm super excited Florence's Low Country Kitchen is reopening because they have great fried chicken. But that is not what scripture means when it talks about fellowship. Fellowship is the body of people who are sold out to following Jesus Christ who are in company together to walk with each other and trying to bring the kingdom of God and to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And there is no way you can do that if you don't know what the gifts are that have been given to the people that are in your fellowship. You can't encourage someone's gifts if you don't know what they are. And so there's a beautiful example of this in this story. Tyrion had given Jill some practice in archery and found that, though not up to Narnian standards, she was really not too bad. Indeed, she had succeeded in shooting a rabbit and was already skinned, cleaned, and hanging up. He had found that both the children knew all about this chilly and smelly job. They had learned that kind of thing on their great journey through giant land in the days of Prince Rillian. Then he had tried to teach Eustace how to use his sword and shield. Eustace had learned quite a lot about sword fighting on his earlier adventures, but that had been all with a straight Narnian sword. He had never handled a curved calormene scimitar, and that made it hard, for many of the strokes are quite different, and some of the habits he had learned with the long sword had now to be unlearned again. But Tyrion found that he had a good eye and was very quick on his feet. He was surprised at the strength of both the children. It was hard to pick up their bearings. It was Jill who set them right again. She knew her Narnian stars perfectly, having traveled so much in the wild northern lands and could work out the direction from other stars, even when the spearhead, the spearhead is their version of the North Star, even when the spearhead was hidden. As soon as Tyrion saw that she was the best pathfinder of the three of them, he put her in front And then he was astonished to find how silently and almost invisibly she had glided on before them now just imagine if Tyrion was so full of himself that he thought what could these other people that are here possibly do to help me on this quest especially since they are young children young children you just shut up and follow me how prone are we to rely on our own gifts and think that we are indispensable. Whereas in fact, God has placed us in a fellowship of believers with many gifts that might enable us to do things beyond which we could ask or imagine. Listen to these scriptures. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment So making a priority of aiding your friends. Again, this is something that if you go back in the history of the Western world, has always been a very high value, even among people who are not Christians, although I would say they borrowed it from Christianity. Uh, Just a little rabbit trail for a moment. If you are a reader and you like history, get Tom Holland's book that's called Dominion. Uh, it is a fascinating book. Tom Holland is a brilliant historian, um, particularly of classical Greek and Rome. He is a scholar scholar, uh, and he is not someone uh, who is as of yet a believer, although I think he's teetering on the edge. Uh, but when he wrote this book, basically he's tracing why do we have so many of the freedoms that we have in the Western world? because a lot of these freedoms did not exist in the ancient world. And what he concludes is that the game changer was the introduction of the Christian faith. And he said, every major freedom that we see in Western civilization derives at some level from the Christian faith. And so this whole idea of aiding your friends is something that comes right from Jesus' words in John 15 and those Last Supper dialogues the night before Jesus was crucified, where he says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so this idea that you deserve to give loyalty to your friends is hugely important, particularly when you live in a narcissistic culture because that idea is not out there right now. Um, I think about that movie that came out, gosh, 30 years ago, that makes me feel so old. It's this movie called Stand By Me, um, that is a movie about some 12-year-old boys um, and has a lot of really interesting meditations about friendship. But you see in that movie how they do stand by each other. But I wonder today, I think it'd be hard to make that movie because people are trained to not do that. They're trained to look out for number one. So what the story here says, all three of them agreed that the very first thing they must do was to go back to Stable Hill. Remember, that's the place where the ape is, where the Kalermeen soldiers are. It is a dangerous place to go. The very first thing they must do was to go back to Stable Hill and try to rescue Jewel the Unicorn. After that, If they succeeded, they would try to get away eastward and meet the little army which Rinwit the centaur would be bringing from Kira Piravel. So they make this their top priority, even though they know it is super dangerous. So some scripture, do nothing. That's a strong word, Nothing, nothing, not anything. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves. And then as we just said, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. And then from Proverbs, which is full of this theme, do not forsake your friend or a friend of your family and do not go to your relative's house when disaster strikes you. Better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother." Now, many of us have been in situations where we had those kinds of friends, and very often we are grateful for that, but I think the more important question and challenge is who do we need to be that kind of friend to in our day-to-day life? This one is sort of like figuring out the gifts and skills, but slightly different. Let gifts and skills rather than stereotypes dictate roles in the quest. It was Jill who set them right again. She had been an excellent guide in England, and of course she knew her Narnian stars perfectly, having traveled so much in the wild northern lands, and could work out the direction from other stars even when the spearhead was hidden. As soon as Tyrion saw she was the best pathfinder of the three of them, he put her in front. And then he was astonished to find how silently and almost invisibly she glided on before them. By the main, he whispered to Eustace, this girl is a wondrous woodmaid. If she had Dryad's blood in her, she could scarce do it better. Some scripture. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now there are a variety of gifts but the same spirit and there are varieties of service but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now this is one of the things about the Christian faith that we lose track of because we're so used to seeing these passages and hearing them that we sort of forget about what it might have been like to be alive in that period to be part of those initial companies of believers, to be amongst these people who are all so different from one another. And we just sort of take it for granted that things roll out the way that they do. But the fact of the matter is that one of the most miraculous things about Christianity is that it completely turned upside down every stereotype and prejudice and cultural and social strata role that there was. And this was actually the main reason Christianity was so violently opposed by the Roman Empire, because Rome was a highly, highly stratified society. And the Christian church said it didn't make any difference if you were a Roman citizen who was a senator or if you were a slave from Ethiopia working in a Roman household, you were all equal at the foot of the cross. And that was absolutely terrifying to the Roman power structure. And you see in scripture how this is reflected. Some of you have heard um, Jeff when he preached on the Acts 13 church, and I wanna just unpack again a little bit of this because it is such a good example of exactly what we see Lewis doing in this story. Because you have to think about, remember, Lewis is writing in the 1940s and the 1950s. He is an English professor. He is in Oxford. Oxford, which only maybe 20 years before that, had gingerly begun to admit a few women and was not very happy about it. And the idea that he would have someone like Jill, a middle school girl, be the valued one whose gifts are put to the fore before the king, that the king sets aside his leadership role because of the gifts that he sees in this middle school girl. This is like to make your head explode. And, yeah, you know, we're just sort of used to it. We think, oh, that's nice. But that is not the reaction that Lewis wants us to have. He wants us to understand that the body of Christ, which is being portrayed here um, in a fictional way, we all need each other. And that when we begin to know what the gifts are in our fellowship and people begin to use those and they are freed up to use those and not based in any stereotypes, then all of a sudden wondrous, miraculous things begin to happen. So this is Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting together, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now I just wanna say, if they hadn't done this and hadn't sent them off, Probably a good half of the New Testament wouldn't be there because all of those books like Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians are written because these two men were sent out to share the gospel after these four men were worshiping and praying together and listening to the Holy Spirit. But the remarkable thing is who these four men were. This is the kind of thing that absolutely made the Romans quake in their boots. So first you have Barnabas. Barnabas is a Levite. A Levite is very prestigious in Judaism, that is the tribe of the priest, but Barnabas has a problem. He is from Cyprus. It's not cool to be from Cyprus if you're a Jew. This is sort of like in Charleston being from off. Um, You are are not accepted. Um, You don't have the right pedigree. Um, So Barnabas is this Levite, but he's not from the right place. He had a lot of money. Um, He's given some of that property um, and sold it and given the money to the apostles. Then there is Simeon called Niger. He is a Gentile from Africa who is black, but he has been converted through the preaching of the apostles. Then we have Manan. Manan is part of the Jewish aristocracy. He is rich, he is a member of Herod's household. Um, The word in the Greek means that they were brought up as brothers in the same household. So he grew up in the palace, The Herods were unbelievably rich. They were also unbelievably corrupt. Um, He is Jewish, he's still a friend of Herod the king, but he has converted to the Christian faith. And then we have Saul, the Pharisee and Roman citizen, who has done a complete 180 and is now following Jesus. So you could not find four men who were less likely to actually be together. But all of those other things of the world says your identity is in this, your identity is in your race, or it's in your job, or it's in your religious background, or it's in your social standing, or it's in how much money you have. All of that goes right out the window. And the only thing that makes any difference is that they are all followers of Jesus Christ. And that's where their unity is. And when they choose to embrace that unity that is because their identity is only in Jesus, that is when God speaks to them through worship and does this amazing work. That is probably the reason that a lot of us are converted now, uh, because the word of God spread because of Barnabas and Paul. So... This is something that is really, really important. These men were an impossible community united by Jesus without prejudice because their identity was in Christ. And this is one of those things that our culture has got so wrong right now. It's telling us that our identity is in all of these other things. And all that does is to separate us and create prejudice. But when we find our identity only in Christ and realize that we are sinners saved by the grace of God, that is where we find hope and the possibility of making a difference. So listen to the scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now remember, during this time period, Jews were taught that Gentiles were dogs. A Jew was not permitted to go into the house of a Gentile. Gentiles were taught that Jews were evil. All of these people were taught from a young age to despise one another. But the gospel of Jesus Christ overcomes all of that in the most powerful and beautiful way. And this is something that Lewis portrays in an incredible way all through Narnia. Someone needs to write a book on this topic because it really is quite remarkable. And one of the things that you see through all of these Narnia stories are the most unlikely heroes, particularly for stories written by someone like C.S. Lewis who was uh, a bachelor white professor in a bougie college, you know, all all of the labels that our culture would want to put on him that would say he should be canceled. But the fact of the matter is Lewis wrote about all of these unbelievable heroes, and it is only because of their contributions that the quests in Narnia are able to happen. So the first one is King Frank. King Frank is the first king of Narnia, and remember Lewis is British, so when he thinks about kings, he's thinking about Buckingham Palace and the the coronation seat in Westminster Abbey and pomp and circumstance, and he's just seen when this is being written the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. King Frank is the driver of a horse cab in London who gets accidentally pulled into Narnia in the early days, and he's got a very broad cockney accent, and he is made the first king of Narnia. Then we have Reepicheep, the warrior mouse. Uh, Reepicheep, this mouse, who mice generally are despised in England, Um, Sometimes we think, you know, Mickey Mouse has sort of changed our view of mice a little bit. But mice are not uh, creatures that people look up to, shall we say. And Lewis chooses to make the most valiant soldier out of all of the stories is Reepicheep the mouse. The one who is the bravest, the most valiant, who has the highest sense of honor and duty, who would go to the death for any of his friends in the company. Then we have Lucy uh, among the four children, who is the real leader. You think Peter, if you've read the stories, are Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. Lucy is the youngest, Peter is brave and the oldest, but he's not really the leader, Lucy is the leader. And Lucy's name means light and It is just beautiful the way that he does this. And then Jill, in this story, Jill Pohl, and Jill is also in The Silver Chair, this bullied middle school girl who we first meet in the story of The Silver Chair when she's hiding behind the gym, crying because the other mean girls in her class have been chasing her and bullying her. She's the one that ends up becoming this great hero in Narnia and that we see has just been made the pathfinder for the king. And then there's Puddleglum. Puddleglum is such a great character. If you haven't read The Silver Chair, please do yourself a favor and do that. Puddleglum is someone uh, that Lewis invented out of whole cloth of a new race of creatures called marsh wiggles. And Puddleglum lives in a swamp He's of a different race, he's got green skin, he has funny looking feet, he has a pointy head, and he doesn't smell really good. But Puddleglum is the person that Aslan sends Jill and Eustace to, to accomplish the quest and the silver chair. And if it hadn't been for Glum, they would never have been able to do what Aslan called them to do. Now, remember, Jill and Eustace are both what the British would call posh. Uh, They go to a um, fancy school. Um, They come from families that are upper middle class. So for them to be in a deeply bonded relationship with this person with green skin who lives in a swamp is a pretty big change, but in fact, That is exactly what happens. And you see the same kind of thing in every single one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And as we've said before, Lewis never does anything by accident. And what he's trying to show us is that in the body of Christ, stereotypes have no place. That we are gifted, all of us, by the Holy Spirit with different gifts, and that when the body of Christ is functioning properly, We use those gifts and put the people with those gifts in the right places. And there's this beautiful passage um, in Prince Caspian where Lucy is there with the other children and they're on this perilous journey. And Aslan is trying to show them where to go. But the other children have started relying on their own skills and they can't see Aslan because their faith is weak. Lucy's faith is strong so she still sees him, but when she says that she sees Aslan, they don't believe her. So this is Lucy speaking. I didn't mean to start slanging the others, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it was. How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come up to you alone. How could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could. Yes, and it wouldn't have been alone, I know, not if I was with you. But what would have been the good? Aslan said nothing. You mean, said Lucy rather faintly, that it would have turned out all right somehow? But how, please, Aslan, am I not to know? To know what would have happened, child, said Aslan? No, nobody has ever told that. Oh dear, said Lucy, but anyone can find out what will happen, said Aslan. If you go back to the others now and wake them up and tell them you've seen me again and that you must all get up at once and follow me, what will happen? There's only one way of finding out. Do you mean that is what you want me to do, gasped Lucy? Yes, little one, said Aslan. Will the others see you too, asked Lucy? Certainly not at first, said Aslan. Later on, it depends. "'But they won't believe me,' said Lucy. "'It doesn't matter,' said Aslan." So Lucy went back and woke the others and told them they must follow her and Aslan, but they did not believe her. After a long argument, Lucy looked up to see Aslan, whom none of the others could see. She saw he was beating his paw on the ground in impatience. "'We must go now. "'At least I must,' said Lucy. You've no right to try to force the rest of us like that. It's four to one, and you're the youngest, Susan said. And this passage goes on and on, but what you see is Lucy being obedient because she knows Aslan. She's in relationship with him. She knows his heart, and she knows what she's being called to do, and she is doing her level best to try to do it. Although she is the youngest, She is the most inexperienced, and she's got these three older siblings who think they know everything who are telling her how stupid she is. And yet Aslan doesn't let her off the hook and say, oh, they're there. Oh, it's so hard. I'm so sorry. He doesn't say that at all. He basically says, chin up, buck up, go do it. We might learn from that. And then Puddleglum Uh, One of the great pieces of writing in all of Narnia is Puddleglum's speech in the silver chair. And what happens in that story is that Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum are trying to rescue this lost prince who's been bewitched, and he's been taken into the underworld, which is like hell, or the upside down if you watch Stranger Things. Um, So they've been taken into this world. and. The witch there is putting the spell on them to try to make them believe that the underworld is all there is. It's very much analogous to the way our world is now, where we hear people say all the time, this world is all there is. There is nothing more. There is no heaven. There is no God. None of that. And so the children are about to be seduced by the spell that she's putting on them. She's playing this harp and sing-songing these soft words to them, and Puddleglum realizes he is about to go under with this enchantment, and he realizes the only way to break enchantment is pain, and so he very bravely goes and takes his big webbed Marshwiggle foot and sticks it into the roaring fire. And so, instantly, he is in major pain, but there also, instead of the incense, there's the smell of burnt Marshwiggle foot, in the room, which starts getting people's attention. And so he gives a speech to the witch. He says this, one word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word, all you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one more thing to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up All those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself, suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of the kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it, we're just babies making up a game if you're right but four babies playing at a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper. If these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for the overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. It is a great speech. It's even better in context, but it is just such an example of what Lewis is trying to say to us Um, Here we have the green-skinned, smelly Marshwiggle, who is the hero. Planning wisely, allowing for both success and failure. If we are challenged, then do you two hold your peace and I will do my best to talk like a cursed, cruel, proud Lord of Kellerman. If I draw my sword, then thou, Eustace, must do likewise and let Jill leap behind us and stand with an arrow on the string. But if I cry home, then fly for the tower, both of you, and let none try to fight on, not even one stroke, after I've given the retreat. Such false valor has spoiled many notable plans in the wars. Wait here till I come again, he whispered to the other two. If I miscarry, fly. Then he sauntered out boldly in full view of the enemy. Part of what we see here is Tyrion is a master of planning. He thinks about every contingency, he thinks about how, what to do if it works, he thinks about what to do if they fail, he thinks about if he's captured, how to protect the children, all of those kinds of things. And we would do well to learn from this because we live in a culture of fly by the seat of your pants and uh, planning is something that is deeply ingrained in scripture. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand." But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Planning enables the Holy Spirit to inhabit what is going on. Flying by the seat of our pants is poor stewardship standing up for truth. This is that scene where Tyrion is getting ready to chop off the head of the donkey. So Jill, remember, the youngest, the little girl, next minute there was a sound of rasping metal. What are you doing, sire, asked Jewel sharply, drawing my sword to smite off the head of the accursed ass, said Tyrion in a terrible voice, stand clear, girl. Oh, don't, please don't, said Jill. Really, you mustn't. It wasn't his fault. It was all the ape. He didn't know any better, and he's very sorry. He's a nice donkey. His name's Puzzle, and I've got my arms around his neck. That was clever. Jill, said Tyrion, you are the bravest and most woodwise of all my subjects, but also the most malapert and disobedient. Well, let the ass live. What have you got to say for yourself, ass? Don't use that line elsewhere. (laughs) But just think about if Jill had not been on her game, if she hadn't thought about, I need to speak up and I need to speak up right now. And if she hadn't had the presence of mind to put her arms around the neck of the donkey, she is on it. Listen to these scriptures. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way and to him who is the head and to Christ. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin." And the reason they said that is what they are yelling out is from Psalm 118, which was a psalm about the Messiah. So the Pharisees are appalled that Jesus is standing there and letting them yell out, basically, you are the Messiah, Jesus. They are shocked. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. It is vitally important that we stand up for truth. If Christians don't stand up for truth, I don't know who we think is going to. And then last but not least, laughter and good news make the soul glad. Sire, said Jewel, those dwarfs are coming nearer and nearer. Do we want to meet them? Carian thought for a moment and then suddenly gave a great laugh out loud. Then he spoke, not this time in a whisper. Because remember this whole chapter they've been whispering because they were worried that they might be heard by the enemy. So they haven't used their voices but this time Tyrion speaks not in a whisper by the lion he said i am growing slow-witted meet them certainly we will meet them we will meet anyone now we have this ass to show them let them see the thing that they have feared and bowed to we can show them the truth of the apes vile plot his secret is out the tide has turned Tomorrow we shall hang that ape on the highest tree in Narnia. No more whispering and skulking and disguises. Where are these honest dwarfs? We have good news for them. When you've been whispering for hours, the mere sound of anyone talking out loud has a wonderfully stirring effect. The whole party began talking and laughing. Even Puzzle lifted up his hat and gave a grand haw hee haw hee 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 a thing the ape, had not allowed him to do for days. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our, so- our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. All too often, we tread and walk in fear in this world. We don't embrace the joy that we are to have because we belong to Jesus. And the more that we are able to be joyous to embrace the gift of laughter, people will be drawn to that. Because when you live in a culture of despair and depression and anxiety, Joy and gladness are a magnet. In Letters to Malcolm Chiefly on Prayer, Lewis says this, but in this world, everything is upside down. That which, if it could be prolonged here, would be a truancy, is likest that which in a better country is the end of ends. Joy is the serious business of heaven. As a great reminder that we are designed For the joy of heaven and that a lot of that joy comes from being in the presence of Jesus and being in the company of believers and part of what Lewis has done in this chapter is to sketch this beautiful vision of what it's supposed to be like living in the fellowship of believers seeking after God and on the quest for his kingdom and there's much good uh stuff shall we say for us to ponder here. So on that note, let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this book. We thank you for the wisdom that it contains that is drawn from your word. Lord, we confess to you how easily we are overrun by the thinking of our culture and we lose sight of the bracing wind of truth that is in your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage in our hearts, that we would learn from the examples in this book, and that we might stand true and bold and brave, filled with the joy that comes from knowing you. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Please meet somebody you don't know before you go home.